I'm really glad when we sing that song that the guys have the easier part with the fewer words. <laughs> okay, I, uh, I know something about you that um, you may not have thought about for quite a while. In fact, uh, you may refuse to think about it, but it really doesn't matter um, because you can't change it. You cannot stop the tick of the clock. You are getting older. You may not want to think about this, but we come up against it this morning in our passage of Scripture in Ecclesiastes. Time keeps moving forward. You and I, we only have so much time under the sun. And this morning, we're going to think about that a little bit. Um, And I believe that as we conclude with the book of Ecclesiastes, that God has done us a huge favor through Solomon and through this book of Ecclesiastes, helping us to understand that what we're really after in life, contentment, satisfaction, shalom or peace in life, cannot be had under the sun. Solomon pursued every avenue to try to find that under the sun. And as we've studied this book, God has helped us to understand that when you limit your living to what's under the sun, you will end up frustrated at the end of your life. You will end up missing what God has for you when you limit your living to what's under the sun. In fact, you'll come to the same conclusion that Solomon has come to. And I've talked to many older people who, when they're honest and candid, will tell you this, that life is meaningless. That life limited to what's under the sun, life disconnected from God, is vanity and not really worth the living. When you get down to the end of life and you're up at Elam Park and somebody comes and talks to you about your life, uh, you're going to say, you know what, I don't necessarily want to live anymore. And you're going to come to the same conclusion that Solomon comes to. And so last week, God says specifically to young people, Do not waste your time looking for life under the sun. Come to understand early in your life. Connect your life to God early in your life. And start out when you're young connecting with God by faith and your life will come to you from over the sun, from God who is your creator. I don't know if you watched the news this week, but there was a scientist who said that we all came from Mars. Did you hear this? We came on a a meteor, and we all arrived here from Mars because the conditions on Mars were more favorable than the conditions on Earth for all of us to come. Anything to avoid the fact that we have a creator. And I thought, my goodness, we're still coming to those, you know, God first faith will um, bring uh, an eternal dimension to 360 degrees of our living now. Every different aspect of our life is affected when our lives are connected to our creator. But when your partner in life is the triune God, when you're really doing life with God, you have to expect the unexpected. You have to expect the unpredictable. If you're doing life with God, You have to know that there's going to be some surprises, that you are not going to be in control, but that he is, and that he's sovereign, and so on and so forth. And God 
tells us, we saw in, in our chapter last week, God says in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he says, look, invest your life and I guarantee you a return. Not necessarily limited to what's under the sun. But if you will invest your life with me as your partner, and you will come alongside and work in the labor that God is doing to bring the kingdom of God into this world, you will be rewarded. Cast your bread on the waters, it will come back to you. Life is an investment. And so this morning, we sort of continue where we left off in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. I believe it's on page 666 there in the uh, Bibles there in your seats if you want to follow along. And as we come to this final uh, word from uh, the professor or the philosopher, Koheleth or Ecclesiastes, here's what he says. Remember your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator. So the word remember means to pay attention to or to consider or to listen to. And it carries the idea of acting decisively on the part of the one you're remembering. If your kids go to do something, you know, and, and, and your wife says to them, remember your father, what's he really saying? What's she saying? She's saying, remember everything that your father said. Remember everything that your father stands for. Remember what your father taught you. That's the idea of this first verse. Remember your creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. I think, you know, um, it's so important. I, I, I know I've said this so many times, you're probably sick of hearing it, but um, the theory of evolution has done so much damage to the younger generations. Because instead of remembering our creator, we're questioning whether we even have a creator. We've taught our kids by the so-called theory of evolution to question whether we even have a creator, let alone remember or respect what he says and, and uh, take him seriously and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think what it, this means is, you know, don't pretend that your experience under the sun is independent of your creator. Your life has come to you from God, from your creator. Remember your creator. It's so important, it seems to me, to equip young people with the truth about, uh, now scientists call it intelligent design, which is a great step in the right direction, or creationism. And it's so important. And I, uh, I, I get a little frustrated sometimes when uh, Donna Geiger, who runs our children's program, says, I don't have enough teachers, and I've approached this one and that one. And, you know, it's so important for us to counter the world in which we live with this truth and to build God's truth into our young people and to have people who are passionate about and love our kids and enough to be able to counter what's coming to us from the world. And it's on every front. And so remember your creator in the days of your youth. Uh, early on, uh, before, verse 2, before the days of trouble come. <laughs> Guess what? Here's something else I know about you that you probably haven't thought about, but the days in your future are going to come with trouble. Now, some of you are old enough to already know that, yeah, that's the way it goes. But some of us are young, and we think, you know, uh, well, you know, that's going to happen to somebody else, but uh, it's not going to happen to me. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I don't find any pleasure in living. I don't find any pleasure in my days. 
And again, I can tell you that um, when you disconnect your life from God and and live your life strictly under the sun, when you get older, um, you're going to feel useless. One of the biggest things, when you talk to older people and ask them, you know, so how are the golden years? One of the first things, especially men, will say is, I just feel so useless. Like if you take your whole life and your whole identity is wrapped up in your job, instead of your relationship with your creator, and then you retire. And then all of a sudden you feel this void because your whole identity has been wrapped up in that job. And you feel useless. Or uh, a lot of older people feel guilty. Say, you know, when you sit down and talk with people and let them kind of have a free talk time, uh, they start reminiscing and they start talking about their life. And inevitably they say, oh, if I only could do this over again, I would do it so different. And they begin to talk about some of the choices they made and how they would choose to do things different. I wish I could do it over again. Or they start feeling sorry for themselves. I don't have any future. Well, my goodness, if you're not connected to God, you really don't have a future. This, if you think this is it, this is the whole ball of wax, when you get old, you're going to get depressed and frustrated. And here's God writing us a whole book in the Bible and putting Solomon through all these experiences in order to, to teach us to say, look, Remember your creator. Uh, Act decisively on behalf of your father in heaven. Remember your creator and do it before you get old. Uh, So remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, before you get dull. Is what he's saying here. Before your mental and emotional capacity begins to fade and you begin to get confused and all the things that happen, I think what he's saying here is that today is the best day you will ever have to begin a God first life. Today is better than then. So many people put off this decision. So many people, and all of a sudden, they find themselves at the end of life, and then there are those, that group of people that say, oh, if I only had this to do over again, I would do it so differently. And so, and then in verse 3, um, Solomon begins to tell us, okay, what's really going to happen? And uh, this is probably the most eloquent uh, description of what's going to happen to your body than you'll find in any piece of literature any place. And uh, when I was younger, I was asked to... Um, speak at uh, Elam Park one time, our uh, continuing care retirement home, and uh, I used this passage. And I thought, ah, this is going to be great. And so I went up there and I talked about what's going to happen when you get old, right? I was the only one who thought it was funny. (laughs) Nobody responded to any of the jokes. It was horrible. In fact, I remember what I did after that, I felt so bad about it, I drove directly to uh, a homemade ice cream place that I know is up there. And I bought myself a cone and sat down and licked my wounds, you know? I mean, I was so (laughs) embarrassed about it. But listen, you tell me, you're young enough. This is a young enough crowd, right? You're not at Elam Park quite yet, but listen to what it says. Verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble. He's talking about here, you know, the last part of verse 1. When you're going to approach your life and you're going to say, I don't find much pleasure every day. My dad is almost 90. We're on the phone almost, you know... uh, two, three times a week now because he doesn't get much out of bed and he's due for surgery and they didn't have it and his heart is weak and I mean, he's got all this stuff and he's like, don't you think I could go home now? 
He said, you know, I've lived a good life. I, I love the Lord. I know what's in front of me. Why do I have to hang on? So, you know, when, when the keepers of the house, your hands and your arms, start to tremble. You can tell when this starts to happen when you fill up your coffee cup and you can't get it to your mouth without it spilling a little bit. Have you had that experience? It's on its way. Okay? <laughs> so now you only fill the cup, you know, halfway. And when your voice starts to get weak, you know? Um, and then uh, the second part of that verse, it says, you know, and the strong men stoop. You have two strong men on which your body rests, your legs, right? I don't know how many people I counted coming in today who've got new knees, new hips, you know? Look what, I, I count all these people coming in today. Look what it says. It says the day is coming when you're strong, man, your legs are going to stoop. They're not going to hold you up anymore. Those legs that you used to run and jump and play sports with. Now you're happy if they can hold you up when you stand up and get out of bed. And that's what's going to happen to your legs. And then uh, the third part of this, look what it says, uh, verse 3, it says, when the grinders cease because they're few. <laughs> when your teeth start to fall out, when you start having more hamburgers than steaks, you know this is on its way. That's what happens. You start ordering hamburgers instead of steaks. And, and besides that, it takes forever for you to eat. It takes you longer to chew everything and to digest everything because you don't have that many teeth left. They start falling out. This is what the Bible is saying, right? I'm not making this stuff up. This is God telling you what's going to happen to your body, just in case you don't know. Um, when your grinders cease because they're few, and look, and those looking through the windows grow dim. You don't need a degree in Hebrew to figure this out. It's when your eyes start to fade. It's when your eyesight goes and your cataracts come, Right? It's when your glasses get so thick it leaves an indent on your nose because, you know, because what's happening? Because you're growing older. Um, and then, verse 4, it's your hearing. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades. All of a sudden your hearing starts to go. Um, you know, if you're um, at that stage where your wife speaks to you and you say, what? What did you say? Speak up, would you? It's probably not her. It's probably you, you know. And uh, music that you used to enjoy with its fine nuances and instrumentations, you know, now is way too loud for your hearing aid, and it annoys you, right? I talk to my dad, and I'm like, Dad, why don't you get up and go to church? Ah, oh, I can't stand the music. I'm like, why? It's so loud. I'm like, turn your hearing aid down. Then I can't hear it, you know. And look what else, then uh, when you can't sleep in, when men rise up at the sound of the birds, but all their songs grow faint. You can't sleep in in the morning anymore. You're up with the crack of dawn with the birds singing, the least a bit of, little bit of noise and pff, you're up, you know, and you can't sleep. And not only that, but your voice that used to be strong and, and uh, you know, hearty now is getting weaker and so on and so forth. That deep, powerful, commanding voice that used to sing and speak with is on its way out. And not only that, verse 5, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets. When men get older, they get afraid. Where I used to have a can-do attitude toward everything. You got a problem, we can do it. 
Now all of a sudden we've got a few accidents under our belts, a few scars on our bodies from accidents that have happened. And all of a sudden we call it wisdom because we're wiser. But the truth is we're afraid to jump in. We don't send 60-year-old people to be soldiers in our wars anymore because they're aware of the dangers because of what they've experienced. Our son Brett bought a motorcycle, right? He comes over, he says, Dad, he hands me the keys, says, take it for a ride. And instantly it came into my mind when a friend of mine did that many years ago and he came over, he bought a new motorcycle, one of those kind of, you kind of lay down on, you know, the short little handlebars. And he said, take it for a ride. And I went around the block and I came within a hair's breadth of killing myself. I mean, I almost hit a parked car. Coming around the corner too fast. I couldn't steer it. Just missed that car. It instantly came into my mind. I said, ah, that's okay, Brett. Some other time. <laughs> when you get older, you, you get afraid, you know? And uh, you're not as much fun as you used to be, and you're more reserved, and you are aware of risks, and, and so on and so forth. And then uh, the second part of verse 5, um, when the almond tree blossoms, again, you don't need Hebrew to figure this out. It's when your hair starts to turn silver gray. The almond tree, if you look at it from the top, it's a beautiful silver gray color, and, and, uh, and that's what happens as we get older. And I see a few of you are approaching that stage that he's talking about here. When the almond tree um, blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along. You know, the grasshopper in the morning is hopping from place to place, but by evening, he's kind of crawling along. And he's talking about the fact that, you know, we slow down. It takes us longer to do things. And uh, the grasshopper drags himself along. You just slow down. You used to hop from one thing to the next, but time comes when everything just takes longer to do. And then um, uh, the next part of verse 5, it says, And desire no longer is stirred. Um, some people think that what he's talking about is sexual desire. That sexual desire goes away. And I'm so glad that's last on the list here. It's all the way at the end. <laughs> But when desire is no longer stirred, but, um, you know, it might also just mean the desire for life itself just is, is it just doesn't get stirred anymore. And so, um, and then look what happens after that, five, the last part of verse five, when desire is no longer stirred, uh, then the man goes to his eternal home. You die. Now that's what you have to look forward to. This is the Bible speaking. Then man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about in the streets. We have a funeral. We have a memorial service. You die. And so we go to our... It, it's very interesting. Um, it says here, uh, then man goes to his eternal home. The Hebrew is really interesting here because in the King James Bible, if you have a King James Bible, um, it says you go to your long home. I thought, that's really kind of cool. You go to your long home. This life under the sun is your short home. But God is preparing for you a long home where you're going to live for eternity. And when you get through this life and your body begins to break down, you go to your long home. And that's on the other side of the sun. It's not under the sun. Uh, we are on our way to our long home. Now, if you're young or if you're old and in denial uh, and pretending to be young, then all of this stuff can seem pretty irrelevant to you. You think this is for grandma, but I'm telling you, grandma already knows this. This isn't written for grandma. Grandma already knows. <laughs> this is for you. 
This is God telling us that this is where life under the sun comes to. This is what happens to this life that we've been given under the sun. And you know it's true. It's just that we don't often like to think about it. Uh, it's not for grandma. It's for us. It's going to happen to you. And the idea here, the point is, listen to God while you can still hear him. <laughs> listen to what he's saying while you can still read his word. Before your eyesight goes and so forth. This is uh, the point uh, where uh, your life under the sun comes to. But God has a long home for you. God has put eternity in your hearts. And God is telling us the truth. And so, verse 6, he says, remember him. Remember God. To remember God is to act decisively on behalf of God. Remember him. He, start, he comes back to the uh, place where he started. Remember him. Remember God. Before the silver cord is severed. Some people think that's a reference to a stroke. Uh, you know, and a stroke is that terrible moment when some portion of your brain is denied the supply of blood that it needs. And your brain is still going, but somehow it's disconnected from the rest of your body. And your brain is telling your hand to do something and you can't do it. It's a horrible moment, a stroke. And some people think that's what he's... Remember, God, before the silver cord is severed, before, or the golden bowl is broken. Some folks, commentators, have suggested that the golden bowl is your head. And uh, when you have a stroke and you become confused and things start to get muddled in your head and so forth, you want to remember God. You want to deal with God. You want to put God first before any of that happens so that God will be with you in the midst of all of that. And then he goes on, he says, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well. And uh, again, water, everybody understands, is the absolute essential. And we have an abundance of it here. But in some of the Middle Eastern countries, water is in short supply. And it's a big deal. And uh, when the water doesn't come and so forth, and uh, life is snuffed out. And some people think that this is a reference to a heart attack. You know that you have to have a blood supply that keeps your whole life and all your organs and so forth going. And, and when your heart gives out or when the pump stops and the, and the uh, blood supply to your body uh, ceases, uh, then um, you're done. And uh, look what he says again. He says, uh, um, verse 7, he says, And the dust returns to the ground from which it came, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. There it is, as plain as you could have it. What happens when you die? Your body returns to the ground. Your body disintegrates. But your spirit, the non-material part of you, your soul, your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, your spirit, your soul, returns to God who gave it to you. The New Testament, the Greek word is psyche. Your personality, who you are apart from your body, what you believe what you think, you know, the, the, the personality that you are, that returns to the Lord. And um, I think this becomes uh, very significant for us to uh, ponder and think about this, you know, um, to do this uh, before we get old, to do this while we're young, uh, because the dust will return to the ground and our spirits will go uh, to God. Our body disintegrates, but your spirit returns to God. And so um, the material, the non-material you, your psyche, uh, the material goes back to dust, but the non-material goes back to God. And if you're ready for that, 
If God's smile is on you now, and you anticipate that day when you will meet him face to face, that's a great moment to be looking forward to. It makes Christians optimists instead of pessimists. The best part of your life is waiting for you. Do you know what the Bible says in uh, Corinthians? Paul writes and he says, No eye has ever seen and no ear has ever heard and no mind has been ever able to conceive all that God has prepared for those who love him. And then the next verse says this, The Spirit, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. In other words, God goes out of his way not just to put eternity in our hearts, but God makes sure that we understand that that future is waiting for us before we die. We don't die with this uncertainty. We don't die with this, oh, I hope I make it into heaven. No, we die with a certainty. We die knowing that Christ paid the price for us and that God has made marvelous promises and that God has prepared a future for people who trust him. And who take him at his word like you can't even imagine. And God cements that by his spirit into your psyche to the point where you are relaxed. Where you can say like my dad, you know, I'm ready. And I've been with enough people, you know, before they die and days and weeks before they die. Some people have that and some people don't. And you want to have that. That's why you want to remember your creator in the days of your youth. That's why you want to establish this God-first relationship now. Today is the best day you will ever have to establish a God-first relationship with your creator. Uh, you know, it, it's life's purpose to be reconciled with God, to get right with God. And so for the very last time, Solomon tells us, you know, if you don't remember your creator, if you don't remember your father in heaven, if you live your life strictly under the sun and don't pay any attention, here's the conclusion that you will come to. It's Solomon's conclusion for the last time in verse 8. Meaningless, meaninglessness, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. If you just think about this for a moment, if... If you give your life to anything first before God, the moment you die, it all becomes meaningless. Whatever you've accumulated, whatever wealth you have, whatever experiences you've accumulated, whatever, the moment you die, it all becomes meaningless. And that's what Solomon is saying. Look, don't avoid God. Don't forget your creator. Don't live your life as if under the sun was all that you have. Meaninglessness. For the last time, he says, it will all come to uh, without acting decisively on God's behalf. And so then we come to the conclusion in verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, not only was Solomon full of wisdom, God had given him an extra measure of wisdom, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. Not only was Solomon wise because God gave him this wisdom, but he was able to communicate his wisdom. And I want to suggest to you that, you know, when God deposits truth in us, it's one thing for us to embrace that truth and be wise with that truth, but it's another thing to be able to communicate it to the next person. It's another thing to recognize that God has entrusted his truth to us for the purpose of expanding it to the next person. And I love the way this uh, section uh, talks about this. Not only was Solomon wise, but he imparted knowledge to people. How do you do that? How do you do that? 
How do you communicate what God's given you to the next person? Well, you have to do it the same way Solomon did it. It says he pondered and he searched out and he set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. It's hard work to communicate the wisdom of God to the next person. You have to choose your words carefully. You have to develop a relationship with the next person and get to understand who they are and where they're coming from and figure out how can I take what God has given to me and give it to the next person in a way that they can understand. And uh, it's always great if you can, you know, encapture things in a proverb or in a sentence that sticks. Like, you know, I tried to say, listen, today is the very best day you will ever have to decide to live a God-first life. It's just one of those little statements that sticks with you. But notice how Solomon did this. It says he had to ponder and he had to search out, you know, and set words in order. Uh, he searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. And this, uh, you know, you need to know, words matter. How you say things matter. Your words matter. And your words should do two things, according to what Solomon tells us here. Um, number one, your words should be like a goad. <laughs> you know what a goad? A goad was a stick with a metal tip. And uh, the shepherds would use it to move the sheep along. They would poke the animals with it to move them along. So they wouldn't just stay in the same spot. And words are designed to move people along. And your words should be like goads. They should just, you know, put a little itch in the next person. They should just upset the person a little bit. They should create an interest. They should, you know, use words to try to be a goad, to kind of move people past where they are. God has given us wisdom. He's entrusted us with the gospel. And when we speak about it, we should speak in, in ways that sort of move people along. And wise people choose their words carefully. And then the second thing about words is they should nail things down. I love this description. He says, uh, the words of the wise are like goads, and they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. Firmly embedded nails. In other words, you know, when we come to the truth of God, it should be like a firmly embedded nail. It should be nailed to our hearts in such a way that it'll never come loose. In other words, words help us to express what we truly believe. And there are some things that we believe that are so absolute that absolutely nothing should ever unlodge these truths from our lives. And that's what happens when the truth of God and the wisdom of God is poured into our lives. And the words come to us. You'll notice um, here... That once you have this truth, it's like firmly embedded nails. But these words come to us, notice in verse 11, uh, given by one shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Solomon is saying that his words have come from God. His words come from God, and so should ours. Um, not in exactly the same way, but uh, one of the truths that the Bible from beginning to end talks about is the fact that there is only really one book that's been given to us by the inspiration of God. That the 66 books that make up the Bible are inspired by God, are unlike any other book. 
Um, next week, Lord willing, we'll begin Second uh, Peter. We're going to back to our uh, study in Peter. And in Second Peter chapter 1, one of the first things we read from Peter is this. Above everything else, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The Bible is not a book written by men. It's written by God who used men to write it. It's inspired, and it goes on, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a different book than any other book in the entire world. The Bible's inspired. It's God-breathed. And that's pretty significant. There is no substitute for listening directly to God from the Bible. There is no substitute in your life for not going home, finding a quiet place, sitting down, and asking God to speak to you from this book. Because it's alive. It's living. And it's active. God speaks through it. There's no substitute for that. And then responding directly to God through prayer. Listening and speaking to God is at the core of a God-first relationship. There's no substitute for that in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's good to um, have teaching like we're doing here. It's good to talk to other believers and share your life. It's good to read books and have experience and so forth, but never be deceived. God has written to you a book about himself and about yourself, and there's no substitute for allowing God to personally speak to you through this book. Don't, don't settle for sermons and uh, you know, books written by other people. All that can be good. But it's not the same as developing a personal relationship and allowing God to speak to you. This book is a living. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. You know what that means? It means that God himself will come through the pages of this book and grab a hold of your heart and change you. You sacrifice a huge amount when you don't sit at the feet of God and let him speak to you through this book. It's the only book in the world that's inspired by God. And there's no substitute for that. If you're going to make a resolution on Labor Day about you know, how the next year is going to be different and you don't have a regular time where you just invite God, please speak to me. You should do that. There's, that's the, like the number one. And number two would be to respond to him then in prayer. And then Solomon goes on and he says this uh, in verse 12. He says, be warned. Be warned, my son, um, of anything in addition to God's words. Now, I know we have certain traditions whereby people think that God is still speaking today above and past the Bible. And uh, I know that sometimes people want to add to it, and, and we have other uh, uh, cults that have other books that they say God has written to us since he wrote the Bible. And here's Solomon. And uh, I would tell you that the exact same warning appears in the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Don't ever add anything to this book. And... Uh, he says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of the making of books, there is no end. That's true, isn't it, right? You don't have to make a book today. You just put on an email. And uh, we have e-books, right? And much study wearies the body. All right, college students? Well, they're all back to school now, but they would agree with that, right? I think what he's saying is that, you know, especially to us today in our age, there is so much information and so much, you know, uh, 
learning that can be had, that it's easy to be distracted from the fact that God will speak to us in this book. And uh, don't add to it. Don't go beyond it. He's, we've got more than we need in what God has revealed to us. And, uh, and, and then he uh, lays this out. You know, don't be distracted from nailing down uh, God's truth. Okay, and then finally here, uh, the conclusion, verse 13. Now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. After we come to the, all through Ecclesiastes, everything that Solomon's had to say, here's the deal. Fear God and keep his commandments. <laughs> Fear God and keep his commandments. Two things. Fear God. Be in awe of God. Give God the profound respect that he deserves. Have an attitude of reverence. Believe what he says. You know, Solomon wrote in, in Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Nobody begins to know anything about anything until they have God in the right place in their life. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Um, Oswald Chambers, uh, I think, has a great statement. He said this. He said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. I think that is so true. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God properly, you don't fear anything else. But when you don't fear God in the way that he deserves, you fear everything else. So you can ask yourself, just kind of do a personal fear inventory and say, you know, where am I really at in trusting God, in fearing God, in reverencing God, in listening to God compared to where God would have me to be? Um, fear God. Remember God. Don't allow anything to come before God. And then keep his commandments. Stop living a me first life. Stop making excuses. And out of your fear or reverence or remembrance of God, act on what he says. To remember God is to act decisively. Remember your father. It's to act decisively on the basis of what you know God wants. Teaching, you know, go into all the world, make disciples, how? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Teaching them to observe, not just to listen to it, but to observe it, God made you, and God knows how you can maximize your life. And when we trust him and we listen to him and we do what he says, he is able to maximize our lives. You know, Solomon has said six or seven times through his book here, enjoy life. Enjoy life. But he always says, enjoy life with God. He never says, enjoy evil. He never says, enjoy sin. He says, enjoy life. But enjoy life with God. And the best way to enjoy life with God is to be obedient to this God that we reverence and that we worship. And to take him at his word and to trust that he knows how to live better than we do. God knows exactly how we should live to maximize our enjoyment and to prepare us for our long home. Our long home here in the short home. So whatever you do, don't just be a hearer of God's word, James says, but be a doer of God's word, right? And I'll tell you why, the last verse. For God will bring every deed, every deed into judgment. This is a sobering ending, including every hidden thing. 
You're not hiding anything from God. Right? Including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Our life is a gift from God, but it's given for a purpose. And there's an accounting for what we did with our lives. You can think about some of the parables, stories Jesus told that illustrate this truth. But here we are way back in the Old Testament. The Bible says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Have you ever thought, you know, about this, that, you know, someday as as we get done with life under the sun, we're going to give an account for our life. Have you ever thought that you were, you were put into the parents that you had? You didn't have a choice in that. You were born into the country you were born. What if you were born, you know, in North Africa someplace in the desert and, and uh, the gospel hadn't reached your tribe yet and so on and so forth? What? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. So don't you want to like, get to the end of your life, meet the Lord, and... Believe that you've done what God's got you here on the earth to do. I know judgment's not a popular topic to talk about, but when's the last time we thought seriously about how am I going to invest my life from now to the day I die in anticipation of that great day when we'll stand before the Lord and, and his smile will be on us, you know, and not that we're perfect. And I think, you know, that... Um, while this is a frightening thought that every deed and thought in our life will be evaluated, um, you're probably saying with Solomon, well, you know, what's the use? <laughs> no wonder life stinks and I'll never be able to. Well, I'll tell you, you've got to go on and read the rest of the Bible. Because the whole Older Testament is designed to point to the Newer Testament. And it's in the Newer Testament where God resolves the tension between who we are and who he created us to be. And... Uh, the cool thing when you get to the Newer Testament is that God goes beyond judgment and does something no other supposed God ever does. He judges himself for our evil on the cross. If you ask the question, what really happened at the cross, I will tell you that God's wrath fell on God. God's anger for our dissonance and our rebellion and our refusal to cooperate with him and our teenage, you know, idiocy, he put on Jesus. 1 John 2, 2 says he put all the sins of all the people in all the world on Jesus. And then God took his wrath out on God so that we would never have to encounter God's judgment. The New Testament shows us that the love of God beat out the judgment of God. And he judged himself in our place. In a moment, we're going to go to that table to remember what happened on the cross. And it's the greatest thing in the world when we understand that God judged himself in our place. When he put Jesus on the cross. I will tell you what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a friend we have in Jesus. And Jesus says, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe me that I'm telling you the truth, if you'll uh, trust in my death in your place, my Father will declare you innocent as a newborn baby. 
my father will um, consider you as innocent as a newborn. Forgive every single misdeed. And you now come and follow me. This is the good news of the Bible. This is the great news that the whole Old Testament pointed to. And it's our privilege to celebrate around that table this great good news that so many people in the world need to hear. Because it's on the basis of what Jesus did that we can have the confidence that our long home and the very smile of God is waiting for us because we've embraced what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, for having Solomon live the life that he did and then journal it all for us so that we could see and understand. And, and Father, I just want to say uh, uh, collectively for all of us here that, uh, you know, life under the sun, it's so true. It doesn't have what you intend for us. And so I thank you, Father, to point that out. And I thank you that we've been able to study this this summer and we've been able to understand that there is a God on the other side of the sun who has put eternity, who has put a long home in our hearts. And all of a sudden, Father, everything in our life, all 360 degrees of our living, takes on a whole new dimension, an eternal dimension. And I thank you for making that possible. I thank you for sending your son. I thank you for taking that uh, portion of yourself, Jesus, and allowing your wrath that we all deserve, <laughs> the judgment that Solomon talks about, this uh, end accounting of our lives on the other side, that you settled it for us ahead of time, that we can know, Father, that we're all paid up. What a wonderful gift it is to live life free of being afraid that you're going to come down on us in the way that we deserve, but that instead you've given us grace the undeserved favor of the shed blood of Jesus and the forgiveness that comes to us through the cross. May we never forget it, and may we respond to it, Father, in ways that honor you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.